so I'm kind of interrupting in a way of, of stealing some of the, the shine from his study. Don't tell him. Don't tell him when he gets back that I'm stealing his verses. Um, but it's something, uh, if, if you're looking for a sermon title, I know some of you guys like titles. I am absolutely horrible with sermon titles, just so you know. Uh, whenever we get done, I just tell whoever else is in the sound booth, just make up a title. Um, really bad at it. I'm not a creative writer. That's probably why. Um, but the main point of the, the message today and the, the main area that I want to look at is be courageous in the truth. Being courageous in speaking and in sharing the truth. So we're looking in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 24 to 31, but I want to give um, kind of rapid fire context here of the previous verses in chapter 10. Uh, so looking back, start back up in uh, verse 16 through 23, just to offer a little bit of context. Starts so off, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, Behold, I send you forth as the sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. So in these first couple verses, we already see a couple different illustrations here. I'm sending you forth as a sheep among wolves. Is that a good situation? Those of you that grew up on farms and actually know how nature works, I'm a city guy from Flint, Michigan. I have no idea. Okay? Is a sheep going to win against a wolf? Probably not. Okay, so he's giving this, this picture. You're, I'm sending you out as a sheep among wolves. And he says, be wise as serpents and harmless, or other translations have it as innocent as doves. Doves are incredibly innocent. I know that. Because as, as much as I've, as a kid, used to try to throw things at birds and animals because I was a horrible kid, okay, they would never attack me, right? Even though I'm afraid of birds still. Um, but, but it's something that what he says, I really am afraid of birds. You can ask my wife. Um, but be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Harmless or innocent as doves. So even in our speech, we're to be, to be harmless, okay? And I'm going to expound on that a little bit more so that we don't have a, a wrong understanding. But innocent as doves. Innocent does not mean naive. Okay, I just want to make that point real quick because I think what can happen is when we talk so much about speaking in love and speaking kindly and speaking um, you know, with innocence and having this innocence about you, it tends to be misconstrued as being naive, that you're completely unaware of danger. Um, like, like a child, right? These, these innocent children, we don't want them just to be naive. Even though they're innocent, you still have to teach them that a knife or things that are sharp are dangerous. Right? We don't, as, as believers, as we're going out to the world and as we're going to share the gospel, as we're going to communicate with people in the world, we cannot be naive of the dangers that are going to come. These are dangers that are even promised. So look at uh, verses 19 through 20. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Is that an incredible encouragement to you? That when you're going to talk, don't, don't be so concerned with what you're going to say. Allow the Spirit to speak in you. Verses 21 through 23, And your brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man 
become. So he gives these disciples another warning that you may even be persecuted by your own family. This is not one of the only times that he's going to talk about this, right? We see all the countless stories where people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And then what he says is, he basically gives them the picture that the cost of following me is not some flippant thing. This isn't, yeah, if you can walk the distance and you, you have shoes on, you can just come and follow me. You are giving me your life. You have to be willing to surrender all that is in your life, all of your possessions. And we know how that went with some of the um, illustrations and the parables of, of, of people coming up and saying, I want to follow you. Well, sell everything that you have. Well, okay, M- may have misunderstood. I don't want to lose anything. I just want the benefits, right? I think all of us at some point in our life have always thought about this. Um, as a teenager, and when I got my first car, my parents paid for it. Horrible idea. Don't do that for your kids. Okay, make them work for a car. Um, parents gave me the car, and all the time I'm coming to my dad, hey, can I have some money for gas? And strangely enough, he would give it to me. Again, spoiled. I completely understand this, okay? I'm very aware of this. And it wasn't great for me because what I wanted to do, at some point, what he said is, you're going to have to get what? A job, okay? I had never had a job until I went uh, to college for my freshman year. Never had a job. But I always wanted to have money to be able to spend, right? I wanted to have all the benefits of a job without actually having a job and actually having to work, Okay, this is the state that I was in as a teenager, infinitely in my wisdom, right? Because I wanted to have all the benefits that come with having a job, but I didn't ever want to put in the work. And so many people were coming to Jesus saying, Lord, I want to follow you. And then he says, here's what it means. And so many turned away. Even at some point, the disciples even questioned why they were following him. And so in 21, he's telling you, believers are told that they may even be persecuted by family. This should not come as a surprise. In Genesis, we see Cain and Abel persecuted by someone in the family, right? This is a lesson that you learn on one of the first couple people that were ever in the earth. And we, we hear about this, we see this persecution from within family. Um, you look at, in a lot of the Muslim cultures, if a, if a Muslim man or woman is to convert to Christianity, what happens within that family? We're smaller, so you guys can talk back today. This, this is how I work anyways. Like, what happens? Okay, death, fall apart, they're, they're cast out, right? They're not a part of the family because they've brought shame upon their whole house because they have converted to Christianity. This is something that, do you, that when we look at the cost of discipleship being either your life and that it might cost you your family, I think sometimes we have a harder understanding of what that means. But other religions that are coming away and converting to Christianity, they are completely just, they're forsaking all of their family and their family forsakes even them. And in verse 23, he says something interesting. But when they persecute you in the city, flee into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. So he's saying, look, when they're persecuting you here, and if you're no longer able to minister, go to the next city. Just go on. And we see Paul doing this in Acts chapter 12 through 14. We see Paul, when it got so dangerous he could no longer effectively minister, he left. He went to another city to share. See that also in chapter 17. Uh, John 15:20 tells us that if the world persec- shows us that if the world is persecuted our master it will persecute his servant. John 16:33 In the world you will have tribulation, but what does Jesus say? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. These are incredible foundational promises that believers have to have if we are going to ever step out into the world and actually speak courageously about the things that are true. So I wanted to give that as a little bit of 
of context um, in some of these verses and some of these texts that we have of Jesus speaking to the disciples. Some of them are very applicable for us. Some of them maybe not so much. Some of them are temporary and just for the disciples, such as um, in verse 6 of the same chapter, preaching only to Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles yet, right? Seems odd right now that we would, um, if we were to ever take that text, that we should only be preaching to Israel and say that's only for us. You know, what are we doing? Right? It doesn't really work. Um, and in verse 8 about raising the dead, specifically meant for the disciples. But here we have a very applicable text. So I want to, um, before we read, starting in verse 24, let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for this time. We thank you that you've given us uh, your word and that for these next few moments we'll be able to um, look at your word and to be able to be encouraged, God, by the promise that you have overcome the world, the promise that we can be courageous, not because of our, of our wisdom or because of any cleverness of man, but that we can rest solely on your word when we're sharing the gospel, when we're, we're stepping out and sharing truth, that we can uh, look to what it is that you have done, and we can look back at your promises and that we have your spirit with us. God, I pray that you would be an encouragement through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, look at verses 24 and 25. It says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So in verse 24, we see this shift kind of from a, from a first and second person narrative. We see it shifting into third person with the language, saying the disciple. So it's opening up to a more general principle. The disciple, his master, the servant. So we can see that this is applicable for us. And he's saying that the disciple is not above his master and the learner is not above the teacher. This is something we are all incredibly familiar with, right? Um, if you go back to your school days when you were sitting in school, let's go middle school, high school age. Okay, this is when we were we thought we were a lot smarter than we actually were, right? Imagine if you had stepped up, like stood up while your teacher's talking, and you decided that you were going to be above your teacher, that you knew more than your teacher, that you were going to decide what would be taught that day. How would that have gone for any of you? Would that have worked well? It didn't even work well when I was in school not too long ago, okay? So if you look even back further when teachers could actually discipline the kids, I can only imagine what that would have been then. The, the, the learner, the disciple, is not above his master. And in verse 25, it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. What is the whole definition of a disciple? It's one who is following after their master. The disciple and the learner wants to be just like their master. Their whole goal is, I want to be like that guy or that woman. In Luke 6, 40, it says, Everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, The one who says he abides in Christ, and notice this, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's both, that can be both an encouragement as well as a conviction for many of us. Do we walk in the same manner as our master walked? Do we even know the way that he walked? Have we read the scripture? Have we looked into his word to see how it is that Jesus actually walked? And in verse 25, he's telling us the result of being like Christ is that you're going to be treated like Christ was treated. People will respond to you the way that they responded to Christ. 
Now we know that when Jesus came in, the right triumphal entry, everybody was happy. And then what happened? He started to talk, right? He starts saying, hey, this is the truth. Here's sinfulness. I'm, you know, he, he starts preaching who he is, starts preaching all that the prophets and that the Old Testament was actually talking about. He's giving them proper and true teaching and all this authority. And the people completely turned on him and said, nope, I don't like this message. I thought this guy was going to come in with a sword and free us from the Romans. But that's not what happened. And he even gives this illustration as he's talking to his disciples. And, and if, we've, um, if we remember Pastor Ben's study, we know that this has happened. And even uh, Jesus has criticized the Pharisees of being uh, sons of Satan. But he says, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Do we remember that people criticized Jesus and said that, that the things that he was doing were through the power of Satan? They called him Beelzebub. This was a very negative term, as many of you are probably like, yeah, that sounds not good, right? Being attributed to Satan. This was a, the name of a pagan Canaanite deity, uh, Lord of the Flies is what it meant. Some of you may have read that book. I didn't attend that class. Um, but some of you may have read the book, Lord of the Flies. But the Jews used this name as an epithet for Satan. Okay? It was, it's a horrible, horrible thing to be calling someone. It's basically the most despicable thing that they were going to be calling somebody at this time. And just understand that this is what the Jews called Jesus. This is what they attributed some of his works to. Attributing the works of the perfect and sinless Son of God to Satan. That should stir some kind of feeling within our souls that should cause some sort of reaction so what he's telling them is look if they even called me Beelzebub how much more will they criticize and call you these things how much more will you be persecuted because of this so he's setting the scene of saying look seek to be like me and in that pursuit you are going to be treated like I was treated this isn't a more often than not this isn't a you know, if you're doing it right, it's going to happen. Verse 26, fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach, upon, preach ye upon the housetops. So what is he talking about in verse 26? He's saying, do not be afraid of these people. They're going to come at you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to harm you. They're going to call you names. But do not be afraid of them. And we're going to see why he's telling us not to be afraid of them in these next couple of verses. But this, the whole idea in 26 is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be, be known. God's children will be vindicated one day. The things that the world tries to cover and call good that are horrible and heinous and ungodly, these things will be revealed. Everything that, will be, that is done in secret will one day be revealed. That is an incredible promise to us. Um, some of you are familiar with um, Jonathan Edwards old uh, pastor, and he was going through a time where people sought to kick him out of his church. Um, long story, I'm going to try to keep it short even though Edwards never did, and anything he did. Um, but all of this, this drama is going on. This man in his church absolutely despised Jonathan Edwards. This person in the city absolutely hated him. 
And the reason he hated him is because he was preaching the gospel and because he hated God. This, this person hated God. And I'll tell you why I'm able to say that so clearly later. Okay? And because of this, for years, he made up all of these false accusations against Edwards. The, just the worst things that you could think of, okay? Coming up with all these false accusations, seeking to undermine his character. And as they were trying to drive him out of the church, and people had asked Edwards, why don't you step up and defend yourself? Okay, now put yourself in this position. If someone is throwing, whether it's in news or um, even conversation, people are throwing false accusations against me, my natural instinct is going to be what? To defend myself. I also feel very comfortable with my ability to, to defend myself with words. Okay, I feel very comfortable with doing that. But naturally, I would say, and part of this is in my pride, right, and arrogance of, well, they're not going to say that about me. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get them, and I'm going to show them that that's not true and that I'm better. And this is what Edwards did when I was reading about this. It made me feel really terrible about myself. Okay? They said, why don't you step up? Why don't you call this person out? Why don't you show that these things are untrue? And his statement was that one day he will be vindicated and that he does not need to do that himself. He sat by, withstood these accusations, understanding that one day all of the truth will come out whether it's in his lifetime or at the judgment day, that all of these lies, all of these untruths will be found out one day. Now, I don't always know um, if that's going to be perfect in every situation, but it was an incredible story of, of Edward saying, it's an attack of, on me. I know why it's happening. Okay, Ten years later, this person that was throwing out all these accusations and making up all these lies, um, he came to know the Lord. He came to a saving faith. And the reason I say that he, that he did hate God and that these were completely untrue is because after he became saved, he went throughout the city, throughout the church, and told people he made up everything. That he did it because he hated Edwards, because he loved God. He saw Jonathan Edwards, this pastor who was preaching the truth of the gospel, and said, I hate you because I hate God. This is an incredible thing that someone, that, that you see these actions of people who are so, so against God and they have so much hostility towards God that they're going to, un, to, to undo the work that this man has done. But Edwards, all along, understanding that God's children will be vindicated. So we know that the world is going to persecute Christ's disciples just as it sought to persecute Christ. We cannot expect that because Christianity is popular, in the world, and increasingly less so, by the way, that it should be completely comfortable for us. Christians are not called to blend in with the world. Um, if you remember, it was last week or two weeks ago, I mentioned the article that I had read about Iceland, how they were eliminating Down syndrome in Iceland, and really, when you read the article, all you find out is that they were eliminating through abortions and pre-pregnancy um, pregnancy screenings and pre-birth screenings, that they were aborting children who showed or tested positive uh, for, um, for Down syndrome. Okay, so you look at this, and, and again, as I, as I said, if you, if you don't remember, um, media was all over this story saying, how great is it, guys? Two thumbs up. This is incredible. Iceland is going to get rid of Down syndrome completely in the country when all they're doing is nothing different than we've seen all throughout human history, which is just a, various, a different form of, of genocide and eugenics, right? This wouldn't work for any other situation, but because it's the abortion of a... Of a infant in the womb, right, an actual person, a child, the world completely uplifts it as some glorious achievement that man is going to take. Saying, look how wonderful this country is. 
And it's so hard to not read that and see people just so boldly and proudly proclaiming satisfaction in murder of children. That's the only way that I can read that stuff. And I look at it, and as you look through this, we understand that the world is incredibly good at diversion and illusion, right? Where they take something that is good and they call it dirty or unrighteous, where truth is completely cast out. Okay, and I know every time I talk, I probably mention this, but it's something that um, is incredibly important because if, if as Christians and as people in the church, and there's a small minority in the church that have done this, fail to actually understand truth for what it is, what do we have? If we cast out truth in the church, then what is the point of the Bible? It's just another good book. We might as well start reading uh, Book of Mormon and Koran and all of these other books or just good literature because if we don't have the Bible as the objective truth, we have nothing. So in a world that says truth is subjective and that um, while I may not believe that that's wrong, um, if Richard believes that it's wrong or Erica believes that it's wrong, then it definitely is and that can, that can change on a whim. Okay? Can we live in a society where truth is very subjective? Okay, what, what you do is when you actually look at this, and this is where uh, my mind goes a lot of the ways, because if you know me, I love to argue. Okay, I actually would have been a good lawyer, I think. Um, but you look at it and you look at the, the worldview that, that prevails today, the idea of, of relative truth, where whatever tr truth is whatever is true to you. So if someone asks me um, any kind of question, I could say, yeah, well, I don't really think this guy is blue. I view it as red, and you can't really argue with me about it because there is nothing objective about it, regardless of what science or anything else says, right? So if truth is subjective, why, why do we have laws, right? People who argue in, in popular uh, culture and literature, and a lot of this I have to read for school, but you read it, and it, it's, it's garbage, okay? I think we can all agree with that. Um, but what you find is that the people who, who subscribe to a worldview of subjective or relative truth are completely incapable of living within that worldview, right? Um, R.C. Sproul says it pretty simply of steal their wallet. They'll, they'll find truth right there because no one wants that to happen. No one is going to argue that, that theft is good. Why is it that so many people here in America, people that are fully against God, so hostile to God that they look over at what people are doing in other countries, okay? Feminist movement, look over at, at the Middle East and say, look at how these women are treated. That is morally and objectively wrong. Yet on the other hand, arguing there is no objective truth. It's all whatever the, the community establishes or whatever the person says. It's completely inconsistent. You can't live in a world without objective truth. Um, a couple weeks ago with the teens, we did kind of a, I'm trying to think of the word for this, Courtney's smiling already, kind of like a mock evangelism situation, okay? So what I did is I put uh, the meanest, uh, most harsh person I could find in our church and put him in a chair right across from one of the teens. It was my wife, by the way. Um, this is going to surprise you. She was rough. She asked a lot of questions. So the whole point of the, of the task was, um, having one of the teens sit in a chair or they could stand however it felt comfortable um, and have Brittany in a chair. Basically the idea was how would you start a spiritual um, conversation with the person, right? Because what I think happens a lot of times is for many of us, we have really good idea of how we would have a spiritual conversation go. We have a really good idea of biblical content. We know the truth of who God is. We know a lot of theology or we know verses. But when it comes time to have the conversation, what happens is fear takes over. 
And we don't really recall everything in that moment. So what I did with the teens is I had them do this with Brittany, which again, I mean, sweet little Brittany, right? Sweet pregnant little Brittany sitting in a chair. Um, I tried to create you know, as much of a controlled and safe environment as you could. Um, and what I had them do was just, how would you have a spiritual conversation with this person? And it was interesting, and you know, the kids, that, the three that did it, did a really good job, and we kind of looked at, okay, here's some, here's some good things, here's some things to remember maybe for next time. Um, one of them was, you are the one that's bringing the most important message, right? So those of us that are believers, when we're going out in the world, if we're going to share the truth of God with somebody, don't get derailed by all of the different twists and turns that people want to take. Stay on your message, stay on the point, because we are the ones that have the truth of God's word. And which message is more important? The message of the world or a message about salvation and redemption from sins? So if we stay focused on that, um, but it was interesting because as I, as I did this, I had everyone else in the room, we were just watching the, the, the teenager and Brittany, right? Just watching the conversation happen. That probably made it uncomfortable. Um, but as we watched, it was interesting to see how the one who was in the chair having the conversation knew what they were supposed to say, they knew what they wanted to say, but actually getting it to flow from the head into the mouth and come out, it just took a little bit longer, there was more uncertainty, there was a little bit of fear and being uncomfortable. But then when that same person was watching someone else do it, oh my goodness, seeing all of the thoughts and them getting so excited, jumping up and down in the chair of saying, oh, read this verse, tell them about this, say this thing, because from the outside, they're completely comfortable. And so Jesus is telling these people, do not be afraid of them. So I want to ask, are we afraid of men? Are we afraid of the world? Are we afraid of of what people might say or how they might respond or do we feel inadequate to carry this message to the world as christ disciples we know that we are to be sharing truth that we have to step out be courageous in our conversations if we go to a person bringing the gospel and trying to explain how incredible it is that god's own son perfect sinless spotless lamb of god would come to earth, making himself lower than the angels, submitting himself in full obedience to God, even obedience to the cross. If we're bringing that message, all of that for the redemption of our sins, and we're afraid to share that, what does that convey to the world? Yeah, we're, we're weak. We're not strong enough to do it. We're not courageous. And, and a message... That, that has so much power in it being carried in such a small and fragile way isn't going to be effective. We have to step out, be courageous. And this is why Jesus is so honest with him. He's saying, you are going to be persecuted, but, verse 26, fear them not, therefore. Don't be afraid of them. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. This is that old song of hide it under a bushel. No, right? Let it shine. Who, who lights a lamp and puts it under their bed? Someone that's going to start a fire, right? Some of you lived in dorm rooms. I'm very impressed. So the world has successfully convinced so many people that there is no truth. And when a Christian comes up, we have to be able to make a stand for the truth. And in our effort of doing that, being courageous, being bold in our speech, speaking the truth of God's word, and understanding that someone can be offended by the message. This is promise, right? We understand biblically, no man is neutral to God. 
those who are, would say that they're agnostic, and I don't know if there is a God. I don't necessarily love him, but I don't hate him either. We know biblically that that's untrue. You either are a follower of God or you're at enmity with him. That you have hostility towards God. Read Romans 1. People are hostile towards God. John MacArthur said this, Making God's truth known includes teaching the so-called hard sayings of Scripture. We are not to be needlessly offensive and never offensive in our approach or attitude. But when the fullness of God's revelation is taught, the world will invariably be offended because it will stand accused. I want us to think about that because he makes a, couple, he makes a lot of points, as John MacArthur always does. But he's pointing out not to be needlessly offensive. Okay, I love to be sarcastic. I love jokes, like a lot. Without jokes, I don't know what I would have. But he's saying, don't be needlessly offensive. And at times we can say, okay, I know I'm supposed to be speaking the truth, so I'm just going to say it however I want to say it. And again, there is the idea of being innocent as doves, being proper, and not being needlessly offensive in our speech. But when God's revelation is taught in all of its fullness, the world will be offended because it will stand accused. This is why it has become so popular to preach only messages about how if you have enough faith in God, you're going to be completely healed. If you have enough faith in God, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to be prosperous. Everything good in the world will come to you if you simply have enough faith in God. Because it feels good. If, if I can sit under someone that's going to talk to me for 15, 20 minutes, tell me that if I, if I pray to God, God, give me all the things that I want, give me health, give me wealth, all of these things, that is an incredibly encouraging thing. And I can walk out going, wow, that's incredible. But it's not going to bring anybody to salvation. It's not going to bring anybody to truly find who God is. And so that it doesn't feel like I'm just picking on the world out here. And again, I'm speaking to a body of believers. I want you to think back to your salvation. When you were confronted with the truth of God, did you not stand accused at that time? Because I'm reading through the word of God and I'm hearing a message and I'm, and I'm understanding the state of my sinfulness. And I stood horribly accused, fully understanding that everything I could ever do in myself was filthy rags, that it was worthless. It is dung, as Paul says. And when you stand accused from the word of God, only then can you actually repent of your sins and accept the salvation that is being offered. That, that God reveals it, that he opens up your eyes and he opens up your ears and you see through the word of God the truth of what is happening. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out uh, quickly, because of time, I'm going to try to move a little bit quickly, but um, if you've ever looked at uh, Barna Research, there can be some encouraging things. It can also be very, very depressing, depending on which stats that you look at. Um, but Barna Research, is, it's nonpartisan. It's a for-profit research, um, but they do a lot of research, especially within churches, and they found a couple of things that were interesting as far as trends in the world and how um, different generations within uh, the current generations and a couple past have viewed the Word of God. How, how is the Bible basically trending within the world? Um, what you found is there are four categories. There were the biblical skeptics, those that were biblically neutral, so saying, yeah, I don't really look at it, but I'm, it's okay if other people do. Um, biblically friendly, which is I might look at it two or three times at most or listen to something of the Bible two, three times at most um, in a large period of time. 
and then those that were biblically engaged. So this is a normal, habitual studying of the Bible, whether it's uh, reading or listening or studying or conversation. Um, and what you find is that the numbers, and they broke it down into the four different categories. They had millennials, Generation X, uh, baby boomers, and elders. So elders was 70 and up, and then you guys kind of see how the generations flowed on after that. Um, so within those four generations, the biblically neutral and the biblically friendly were all basically about the same. Their, uh, biblically friendly was within 36 to 38 percent, and neutral was within 22 to 24 percent. So you have this middle group of people that are sort of engaging in the Bible or generally okay with it. But again, throughout generations is kind of what I was looking at here, and it's consistent. Those that are biblically engaged of the elders, 27%, boomers, 24%, Gen X, 20%, millennials, 14%. So what are we seeing? The older generation, a quarter of them being very actively engaged in the Bible. With the boomers, it's moving down 3%. Down to Gen X, another 4%, and then another 6% to millennials. So within three to four generations, half of those that were biblically engaged are gone. So what you're also finding is that as these generations are happening, and the younger generation is so much less biblically engaged, and this is whether it's listening, uh, reading, music, conversation, I'm telling you, they opened up the gates to get this category to be filled. And it's still only 14% among millennials, which you can include me within that group, so it doesn't sound like I'm saying bad things. Um, then I looked at the skeptic, right? So from elder to millennials, we saw this downward trend of biblically engaged. Now notice this one, those that are biblically skeptic, saying that have nothing to do with it, it's just made up by men, meant to manipulate people. Elders is at 12%, boomers 15%, Gen X 22%, and millennials 24%. So with this one, the complete inverse of those that are engaged, we see an upward trend. So what's happening, I'm trying to figure out which way to do this for you guys. You have biblically engaged up here and going at a downward trend. And at some point, those that are, that are biblically skeptic are going to cross over and are going to far surpass. Okay? This is like all of your different charts that you have um, if you're into finances. Biblical skepticism has almost doubled in the current generation than those that are 70 or older. So what is it that's happening that is causing all of this? Again, it's the idea of not being courageous in truth. If we don't know what truth is, if they're undermining truth, which is what the world has done, I'm telling you because I've been in these schools, truth is kind of this open-ended thing. You go to college and it's even worse because you're taught how to think at college, but really what you're taught is, eh, it's whatever you want it to be. So as this is happening, uh, one of the things that you note is that 80% of those that are biblically skeptic, they openly admit hostility towards God. So again, open hostility to the Word of God is growing in our culture today. And we look at the world, and you know, I've had many conversations, a lot of people um, this week asking me questions about all of the events that are going on, whether it's in Houston or uh, West Coast and down in Florida. And so many of us probably have family in any one of those areas. Some of you have family in all of those areas. Um, and just continuing to pray for them and for safety and for everyone there. But you look at all of this, and it's hard because what you see is, I see this all over Facebook, I see it all over Twitter and all, the, all these different social media platforms is, where is God in all of this? If God is so good, why are all of these things happening? And it seems like a logical question in this time of, you know, half the West Coast is on fire, hurricanes are 
are just pounding Florida, not to mention the other small islands that are right around there that are getting it much worse. So where is God in all of this? And that question is asked without a truth of who God is. We, because we don't understand the sinfulness of man. We, I've had so many people, um, friends from college and other people, asking me, okay, is this a sign of, of the end times because all of these things are going on? And I say, you know, I don't know. Okay, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But I also find it very hard to believe that this is the very worst period in human history that this is the first time there's ever been a hurricane down in Florida. This is the first time that some of these things have happened. God has always had these things going on. This has always been God's judgment upon um, countries and people groups. You look at the disasters that have happened in Israel. We look throughout all of biblical history and look at all these incredible things that have gone on. But regardless of the circumstance, one thing that we can always look back to is that verse from John 16.33, but don't be afraid. Take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling those who follow him that he has overcome the world. The incredible encouragement that we have that, that when we go to speak to someone and sharing the gospel with them, that we're not doing it because we're so smart because we're so intelligent, because we're so clever. We don't have to search for our own wisdom. We simply tell them the truth of who Christ is and what it is that he's done. We have to be courageous in speaking this. In this valley, would you guys, some of you have lived here a lot longer than I have, would you generally say that this valley is a God-honoring as a whole valley? Probably, maybe not, right? Probably not, I don't know. There's a lot of worship as far as nature and all these other things that are going on and everything is very casual, right? So what, as a church, can we be doing to step out there and to share this truth? There's so much that goes on in the world and if we, as the church, fail to be courageous and calling sin what it is and going out and speaking truth into people, and that doesn't just mean you're going out yelling at people saying they're a sinner and speeding away down the road. Okay, I, the thing is, I think you guys are so smart, I don't really feel like I have to qualify a lot of that, okay? But in conversations with people, when you're asking them about what they do, asking them, you know, we, we have so many conversations on all these different topics, and what you can do is you can just tell them a story about um, a friend that you have at church or something that happened at church, any way that you can insert the word church or God or something in there, and just have a spiritual conversation. Um, some of you guys are going to make fun of me about this, um, but I'm in some fantasy basketball leagues, okay, because I'm a nerd. But there is some good that comes from it. One of the guys, he lives in Australia. It's kind of a worldwide thing. Don't ask questions. Um, but he, he was asking me different questions about what I do, okay? And as a pastor, it's very easy to work into a spiritual conversation when someone asks you, what do you do? Okay, it's kind of a cheat code in that way. Um, but I start to tell him what it is that I do, and he asks me, how did I become a minister? Why, why did I get into ministry? Now, there's a couple different options there. I can say, oh, I just thought it would be something I would like to do. And you just end the conversation. Um, and I sent uh, Nicholas, and I was talking to my wife about this too. And so my response was that I was saved by grace when I was 17 years old, and God called me into the ministry. And so his response, which is very funny, was saved by grace. Like, is that um, like some kind of phrase or whatever? Like, just thought it was some kind of catchy phrase. 
So then what do you think I have the opportunity to do? Get to explain it. Okay, this is someone I've never met. He's a um, 40-year-old man that teaches at a university. He lectures at university about um, sustainable commodities and all of these things. Okay, so highly intellectual guy that I met through some fantasy basketball thing that now is asking me questions about what does it mean to be saved by grace, and we've been having these conversations um, just through, um, through text messages and things like that. But he's asking me all of these questions, and I have the chance to either say, well, I don't really know if I want to be, you know, bold in these conversations, or I can continue to say, look, this is what saved by grace means. We started talking about, um, about morality. Okay, where does morality come from? And he's saying, you know, it shouldn't affect um, public policy and goes into all of these things. And we're able to have all of these conversations simply because the first response wasn't one that was done in fear. Open up the conversation and just go with it. You know, um, those of you that are really, um, really active in, in sharing your faith and sharing the gospel with people. And some of you go out and, you know, this just is a natural thing for you. Um, but whenever I have conversations with people, there's still always that initial, like, butterfly feeling that always happens, okay? But it's not so much fear, but for me now it's kind of excitement because I've gotten over the fear. In verse 28, and this is just the last verse, I'm going to leave you with this. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Isn't that an encouragement to those of us who believe in Christ, who have come to the saving faith, that anyone here on this earth can only harm your body, but they can never do anything on your mind or your heart or your soul? This is the truth that the disciples took with them, almost all of them, while they were martyred. So many people killed for their faith. Understanding this truth that yes, they may kill my body, but they will never be able to touch my soul. And the irony here is that even though they may be able to destroy your body, that body one day is going to be resurrected again, which is just an incredible, just an excerpt from a story from John MacArthur's commentary, just because I love John MacArthur. Martyrdom of Christians in Uganda says that in 1885, three Christian if they did not recant. Again, these are young, young boys in Uganda. Soon we will be with Jesus, which is much better. But ask him to repent and change to be with Jesus very soon, which is so much better. And you could leave this with a spiteful message. And these Ugandan boys are sending it out. As they stood bound and awaiting death, they sang a song named Yusufu said, quote, please don't cut off my arms. I will not struggle. By 1887, two years later, a large number of other they had no fear of their death. They had no fear that their physical body was going to be harmed. Children's testimony bringing adults to salvation. Again, don't think that this is something that only... So I want to encourage you, be courageous in the truth. In your conversations, be, be courageous. Christ has overcome the world, and if we have accepted him, we have those promises secured for us that only God is the one who can harm body and soul. They can only touch your body. They can do absolutely nothing to your soul. Be a strong testimony in this valley for Christ. Let's pray.